Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast. We are taking a detour from exploring the 56 men who signed the final gross version of the Declaration of Independence so that we can explore Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the document, as far as we can recreate it. Remember, Richard Henry Lee originally moved his resolution for independence on June 7th, and it was tabled for a few weeks to gather the sentiments of the colonies. As we have discussed in prior episodes, on June 11, 1776, a committee of five men was formed to draft the Declaration of Independence, with the expectation that it would be adopted if Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence was approved. The committee of five was composed of Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was given the task to draw up the first draft. He showed it to Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, both of whom made a few comments, which Jefferson readily accepted. That slightly edited draft was then presented to and debated by the Second Continental Congress. What most people do not appreciate is that the Second Continental Congress made many important changes to the document before it was approved, and then a few more stylistic changes were made on top of that before it was presented for signature. Just to be painstakingly clear, there were at least four versions of the Declaration of Independence. The first rough draft was by Jefferson alone. The second draft included a handful of changes suggested by Adams and Franklin. That draft was presented to Congress on June 28th. The Congress did not discuss it fully until after the resolution for independence was approved on July 2nd. Once the colonies were resolved to revolution, the Declaration became the focus of the debate beginning in the afternoon on July 2nd, which finished on July 4th. The third draft was then approved on July 4th. The fourth draft was the final engrossed version, the one you're used to seeing in the flowing script with John Hancock's signature. The engrossed document was presented for signature for congressmen on August 2nd. We don't want this to be a 12-hour episode, so we're only going to compare the first and final drafts. That is, we will review Jefferson's first rough draft, and then we will highlight the changes from that first draft to the final engrossed signed draft. We will, of course, begin with the beginning. When I say we... I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. I want to note now that the final August 2nd engrossed version cleaned up capitalization, usage of commas, semicolons, and colons, as well as spelling, some of which have had long-lasting consequences. The main grammatical revision is the change from inalienable in Jefferson's version to unalienable in the engrossed version, I-N versus U-N. We have talked about this one in particular before. Remember, we think this was made by John Adams, who was in charge of overseeing the production of the final engrossed version. In any event, other than changing inalienable to unalienable, we won't stop to discuss the grammatical edits here. Instead, we will be focusing on purposeful changes in wording made by the committee in Congress. And the exact changes made by Franklin and Adams are somewhat of a mystery. And in any event, they were accepted by Jefferson. So for purposes of this episode, we will be giving credit to Jefferson for adopting them and to the whole Congress for any of their revisions in the final version. Now, to the main event. We will begin by simply reading the entire Jefferson draft straight through. Do yourself history and the future a favor and listen with a blank mind. Pretend you've never heard of the Declaration of Independence before. Savor it. Mike Girard. Please begin with the reading of the Jefferson Version. Why, thank you, Judge Warren and Sheila Guerin. Thank you so much for supporting 
this podcast. And here we go. A Declaration of the Representatives of the United States of America in General Congress Assembled. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people to advance from that subordination in which they have hitherto remained, and to assume among the powers of the earth the equal and independent station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the change. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal station they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these ends, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government shall become destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, begun at a distinguished period and pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to subject them to arbitrary power, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to expunge their former systems of government. The history of his present majesty is a history of unremitting injuries and usurpations among which no one fact stands single or solitary to contradict the uniform tenor of the rest, all of which have in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world for the truth of which we pledge a faith yet unsullied by falsehood. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent shall be obtained. And when so suspended, he has neglected utterly to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation, a right inestimable to them, formidable to tyrants alone. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly and continually for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long space of time to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, 
and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has suffered the administration of justice totally to cease in some of these colonies, refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made our judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and amount of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices by a self-assumed power and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies and ships of war. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitutions and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their pretended acts of legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for taking away our charters and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here, withdrawing his governors and declaring us out of his allegiance and protection. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions of existence. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Actually, the deletion is substantive and omits that the king was acting unconstitutionally. Jefferson wins this round. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a people who mean to be free. Future ages will scarce believe that the hardiness of one man adventured within the short compass of twelve years only on so many acts of tyranny without a mask over a people fostered and fixed in principles of liberty. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend a jurisdiction over these, our states. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here, no one of which could warrant so strange a pretension, that these were effected at the expense of our blood and treasure, unassisted by the wealth or strength of Great Britain, that in constituting indeed our several forms of government, we have adopted one common king, thereby laying a foundation for perpetual league and amity with them. But that submission to their parliament was no part of our constitution, 
nor ever an idea, if history may be credited, and we appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, as well as to the ties of our common kindred, to disavow these usurpations, which were likely to interrupt our correspondence and connection. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity, and when occasions have been given them, by the regular course of their laws, of removing from their councils the disturbers of our harmony, they have by their free election reestablished them in power. At this very time, too, they are permitting their chief magistrate to send over not only soldiers of our common blood, but Scotch and foreign mercenaries to invade and deluge us in blood. These facts have given the last stab to agonizing affection, and manly spirit bids us to renounce forever these unfeeling brethren. We must endeavor to forget our former love for them and to hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We might have been a free and great people together, but the communication of grandeur and of freedom, it seems, is below their dignity. Be it so, since they will have it, the road to glory and happiness is open to us too. We will climb it in a separate state and acquiesce in the necessity which pronounces our everlasting adieu. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these states, reject and renounce all allegiance and subjection to the kings of Great Britain and all others who may hereafter claim by, through, or under them. We utterly dissolve and break off all political connection which may have heretofore subsisted between us and the people or parliament of Great Britain. And finally, do we assert and declare these colonies to be free and independent states, and that as free and independent states, they shall hereafter have power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Yes, the Jefferson version is magnificent. As you know, we have spent a multitude of episodes painstakingly going through each paragraph, no, each sentence, no, each word of the final version of the Declaration. And so if you're caught up to where we are now, you likely noticed many changes to the text. Scholars usually count over 80 amendments. Jefferson was very unhappy. Every change felt like he was being stuck with a knife. Congress was mutilating his masterpiece. Jefferson's disposition had not escaped Benjamin Franklin's old but discerning vision. Franklin leaned over to Jefferson and relayed an amusing tale about a hat maker who is drawing up a plan for his sign for his store. Franklin said, I have made it a rule. Whenever in my power to avoid becoming the draftsman of papers to be reviewed by a public body, I took my lesson from an incident which I will relate to you. When I was a journeyman printer, one of my companions, an apprentice hatter, was about to open a shop for himself. His first concern was to have a handsome signboard with a proper inscription. He composed it in these words, 
John Thompson, hatter, makes and sells hats for ready money with the figure of a hat subjoined. But he thought he would submit it to his friends for their amendments. The first he showed it to thought the word hatter tautologist because followed by the words makes hats which show he was a hatter. It was struck out. The next observed that the word makes might as well be omitted because his customers would not care who made the hats. If good and to their mind, they would buy by whomever made it. He struck it out. A third said he thought the words for ready money were useless as it was not the custom of the place to sell on credit. Everyone who purchased expected to pay. They were parted with and the inscription now stood, John Thompson sells hats. Sells hats, says his next friend. Why, nobody will expect you to give them away. What then is the use of that word? It was stricken out, and hats followed it. And why have the word hats? Rather, as there was already a hat painted on the board. So his inscription was reduced ultimately to John Thompson, with the figure of a hat subjoined. Well, let's see what kind of sign the Congress made and explore the changes. The header or entitlement, or the first sentence, changes dramatically. In the original, it states, A declaration by the representatives of the United States of America, General Congress assembled. The final version now includes the date by stating, In Congress, July 4th, 1776, and it adds the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. Remember, even on July 4th, only 12 of the 13 states approved independence and the declaration. New York abstained until July 9th, 1776. So when the declaration was finally signed, all 13 colonies had finally approved it. Mike Gerard, please, the final text as approved by the Congress. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. Wow, just magnificent. Jefferson's first full sentence was, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a people to advance from that subordination in which they have hitherto remained and to assume among the powers of the earth the equal and independent station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the change. The final version changes as follows. One people replaces a people. They omit the phrase, advance from that subordination in which they have hitherto remained and. They change the phrase, the equal and independent station, to the separate and equal station, and to the change is now the separation. Bombastic Brent Bassett, let's hear the final text. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Yes, I think we have to give Congress high marks for their editing there. Bonus points to Congress. Agreed. Jefferson's original draft continues with the following. 
We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Many changes are made here too. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable becomes we hold these truths to be self-evident. They simplify the all men are created equal and independent to that all men are created equal. They streamline the phrase that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable to that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And they amend among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness to that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mike Gerard, how does that final text sound? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, this final version is just stunning. The editors are awarded super bonus points. No doubt the engrossed copy here is amazing and earth-shattering. The Apostle Democracy's draft continues with, that to secure these ends, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The final text changes ends to rights, and that's it. Bombastic Brent Bassett, what does the engrossed copy provide? That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Yep, another improvement, we think. Agreed. Looks like the editors are doing an excellent job so far. The next part of the Jefferson draft provides that whenever any form of government shall become destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation in such principles and organizing its power such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Just one change here. Shall become is made simply becomes. Mike Gerard, hit us with the final text. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And yeah, that's a small but nice change there too. Here comes the next portion of the Man of the People's rendition. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Can you tell me what changed in that final version? No? You're right. There is no change. The editors left this wonderful phraseology completely alone. Jefferson strikes back. Okay, the next portion of the original draft is, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations begun a distinguished period in pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to subject them to arbitrary power, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. How about here? Any changes? But of course, they strike begun at a distinguished period and and they substitute subject them to arbitrary power with reduce them under absolute 
despotism. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Modest changes, but again, most helpful improvements. Indeed. The Red Fox's draft continues. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to expunge their former systems of government. The history of His Present Majesty is a history of unremitting injuries and usurpations, among which no one fact stands single or solitary to contradict the uniform tenure of the rest, all of which have in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world, for the truth of which we pledge a faith yet unsullied by falsehood. Well, Congress reaches for the red quill and changes quite a bit. They replace expunge with altar and majesty with king of Great Britain, swap unremitting with repeated, and leave out among which no one fact singles out or solitary to contradict the uniform tenure of the rest, all of which have. They add, all having and omit for the truth of which we pledge a faith yet unsullied by falsehood. Follow me? Me neither, really. I got this, Judge. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Now, the edits here do make it a bit less stuffy, but excising that last phrase that says, for the truth of which we pledge a faith yet unsullied by falsehood, that was powerful, and I get why Jefferson felt a dagger in his chest over that blow. Although, striking this one that said, among which no one fact, single or solitary, to contradict a uniform tenor of the rest, all of which have, I mean... That's more understandable, but still, that lost phrase was really eloquent. And I give this round to Jefferson. The pen of the revolution's draft continues with the list of grievances, the first of which is, he has refused to assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. No changes. Jefferson prevails. The next grievance, as written by the babe born on April 13, 1743, is... He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent shall be obtained, and when so suspended, he has neglected utterly to attend to them. Here, the words neglected utterly flip to utterly neglected. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. Eh, this is a wash. Agreed. The next grievance in Long Tom's draft is, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation, a right inestimable to them, formidable to tyrants alone. After the right of representation, the editors insert in the legislature. 
He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them, formidable to tyrants alone. Yes, this clarifies where the representation was, but I'd call this one even. Then Congress did something pretty unexpected. Instead of wordsmithing, they added an entirely new grievance omitted by the graduate of William and Mary. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. Now, this is excellent thinking Congress. This was a serious grievance that we discussed in earlier episodes, and Congress makes a very meaningful contribution here. Bravo. The next grievance is drafted by the lawyer who learned law at the hand of his co-signer of the Declaration, George Wythe. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly and continually for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. Here the editors remove and continually. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly and continually for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. Hmm, another wash. The co-creator of the Virginia Statue for Religious Liberty's next grievance is, he has refused for a long space of time to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without, and convulsions within. The final draft deletes space of, before time, and inserts after time the phrase, after such dissolutions. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. Indeed, this is a small but important clarification. The future sponsor of Lewis and Clark's expedition continues. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. Perfection! Bonus points for Jefferson. The next grievance by Virginia's youngest congressman is, he has suffered the administration of justice, totally to cease in some of these colonies, refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. Obstructed replaces suffered. They delete totally to cease in some of these colonies and add the word by after administration of justice. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. Definitely an improvement. Congress comes through here. The next grievance drafted by the former member of the House of Burgesses is, he has made our judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and amount of their salaries. Two small insertions. They place the before amount and and payment after amount. 
He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. I'm not sure that the additions actually help, so I'll give this one right back to Jefferson. The author of Notes on the State of Virginia's Next Grievances, he has erected a multitude of new offices by self-assumed power and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. The editors excise by a self-assumed power. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Actually, the deletion is substantive and omits that the king was acting unconstitutionally. Jefferson wins this round. The next grievance by the author of the Kentucky Resolves, which condemned the Alien and Sedition Acts, is He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies and ships of war. The final version strikes out ships of war and adds to the end, without the consent of our legislatures. He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. Now, ships of war was actually a very serious point, and we discussed in prior episodes how British warships raided and bombarded colonial coastal cities. But the addition here of without the consent of our legislatures is a key point that Jefferson did overlook. And so this one, eh, let's call it a wash. The next grievance drafted by the wartime governor of Virginia is, he is affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Sancrosanct. Jefferson wins this round uncontested. A strong supporter of adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution wrote the next grievance as follows. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitutions and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their pretended acts of legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. Constitutions becomes singular, and pretended moves from before acts of to after acts of. More important, the final version makes quarter large bodies of armed troops among us as just one item in a list of independent grievances, while Jefferson has it flow as part of this grievance. In the final version, there is a colon inserted after acts of pretended legislation, which begins a list of such acts, beginning with the quartering of troops. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. By clarifying that quartering of troops was one of many acts of pretended legislation, the edits were a substantial improvement. Points to Congress. The actual language of the now-separate grievance about quartering of troops was unscathed. The next grievance by the man who crushed the Barbary pirates is for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. There is a very slight change. That is the word which goes between murders and they. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. The revision here is just too small to give any award credit. The sponsor of America's first opposition newspaper's next two grievances are preserved intact. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. 
for imposing taxes on us without our consent. Perfection gives Jefferson the nod again. The architect of Monticello's following grievance is for depriving us of the benefits of trial by jury. The final version inserts, in many cases, before the benefits of trial by jury. For depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of trial by jury. By explaining that violations of the jury right were not rare, we must award the editors a point. The intense bibliophile's next grievance is for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. Perfect. Bonus points for Jefferson once again. Before Jefferson's next grievance, the editors add a second, entirely new grievance. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. As we explored in a prior episode, Canada and how England governed it was a huge concern for the colonists, considered an existential threat to their rights as Englishmen, and super bonus points here to Congress. The next grievance from the man who made Aaron Burr vice president. For taking away our charters and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. After for taking away our charters, the editors supplement with Abolish our most valuable laws. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. The editors graft on an important point here. Give them another nod. The intense wine aficionado gives voice to the following grievance. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Left alone completely, Jefferson hits the target with amazing precision. The sage of Monticello includes the following grievance. He has abdicated government here, withdrawing his governors and declaring us out of his allegiance and protection. The editors here make several changes. They delete withdrawing his governors and, and replace it with by. They delete allegiance and, and at the end of the grievance, they add and waging war against us. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. This is way more direct and way more powerful. And the point goes to this final revision. Red Tom continued with, He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. The editors found no fault with this powerful grievance. Jefferson scores again. The draft continues. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy unworthy the head of a civilized nation. The final version inserts after perfidy the strong phrase, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy, the head of a civilized nation. Now that's a winner. Point to the editors. 
The editors then create yet another new grievance. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. As we reviewed in a prior episode, impressment was an impressively horrid grievance, all puns intended, and bonus points to the editors. The third president's next grievance. He has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions of existence. The final version adds, after he has, the compelling phrase, domestic insurrections among us and has, they also delete the last two words, those being of existence. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Again, the changes assist the power and meaning. The editors win this round. The author of a summary view of the rights of British America's next grievances, he has incited treasonable insurrections in our fellow subjects with the allurements of forfeiture and confiscation of our property. The editors did not bother to tinker with it. They just obliterated it completely. Although it rings true, it probably didn't add much. Call it a wash. The author of the Northwest Ordinance banning slavery forever in a territory that would become five free northern states, the president who signed the federal law that banned the slave trade, and the slaveholder who emancipated hardly any of his own enslaved people, wrote this next. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opribum of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian, and that's capitalized, King of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men, again capitalized, should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us, and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them, and murdering the people upon whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. We all remember that grievance, right? Of course not. South Carolina and Georgia made this a decision rule, either cut out this most compelling denunciation of the slave trade, or they would walk away from independence. An unforgivable sin that haunts us to this day. Congress loses 50 points. The first Secretary of State's next passage fared a bit better. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a people who mean to be free. 
Future ages will scarce believe that the hardiness of one man adventured within the short compass of twelve years only, and so many acts of tyranny without a mask, over a people fostered and fixed in principles of liberty. In the phrase rule of a people, they insert free, before people, and then just erase the rest of the passage. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We're a bit of a mixed mind here. Maybe Jefferson's draft was an over-the-top attack on the king, but then again, maybe the king really, really deserved it. I mean, it seems that a bit more polishing as opposed to erasure could have actually strengthened this. So let's just call it a tie. The father of the University of Virginia next wrote, Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. Unscarred by the editors, Jefferson prevails again. He continues, We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend a jurisdiction over these, our states. After the phrase, by their legislature to extend, the final version replaces A with an and inserts unwarrantable and replaces these, our states with the simpler us. Follow that? We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. This is simpler and still as powerful. Give this round to the editors. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. What was deleted was the rub of the issue, that Parliament had determined that it could legislate for the colonials and that the colonials rejected it. But the detail here would certainly trigger objections based on history and law. Plus, the point was made earlier. Both Jefferson's draft and the editing make complete sense. But since the editing made it cleaner and less debatable, we give it the thumbs up. The second vice president of the United States next wrote, And we have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, as well as to the ties of our common kindred, to disavow these usurpations, which were likely to interrupt our correspondence and connection. The editors cut out the first word to start a new sentence. After the new first word, we, they insert have. After magnanimity, they delete as well as and add we have conjured them by. After these usurpations, which they replace were likely to with would inevitably and replace the phrase correspondence with connections and correspondence. Got all that? We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. Much smoother. We must give the editors their due. The future diplomat to France then wrote, They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. And when occasions have been given to them by the regular course of their laws of removing from their councils the disturbers of our harmony, they have by their free election reestablished them in power. At this very time, too, they are permitting their chief magistrate to send over not only soldiers of our common blood, but Scotch and foreign mercenaries to invade and deluge us in blood. 
These facts have given the last stab to our agonizing affection, and manly spirit bids us to renounce forever. These unfeeling brethren, we must endeavor to forget our former love for them and to hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We might have been a free and great people together, but a communication of grandeur and of freedom, it seems, is below their dignity. Be it so, since they have it. The road to glory and happiness is open to us too. We will climb it in a separate state and acquiesce in the necessity which pronounces our everlasting adieu. Here again, the red quill comes out. After the first clause ending with consanguinity, everything is struck out until the very last clause, which begins with acquiesce in the necessity. The editors make that phrase part of a new sentence and start the new sentence with, we must therefore... And then after acquiesce in the necessity, they delete eternal before separation and move to the end of the paragraph, the stirring phrase, and we hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. Sophisticated editing here. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. The details listed out by Jefferson attacking the English public are radically reduced. Some of the text was perhaps redundant. Some congressmen may have thought the attack on the Scottish as unnecessary, and some other text would reappear later. Now, this is a tough judgment, but here, less is more, especially when they pull to the end of the line the stirring phrase of enemies in war, in peace, friends. And so, another solid point to Congress. The ingenious compiler and reviser of the laws of Virginia then drafts, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled. The editors say, not so quickly. After the reference to in general Congress assembled, they insert the steering clause, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. (laughs) This is true genius. More bonus points to Congress. The man who eventually reconciled with John Adams after years of political strife next wrote, Do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these states, reject and renounce all allegiance and subjugation to the kings of Great Britain and all others who may hereafter claim by, through, or under them. The editors were not quite finished. They substitute the reference to states with colonies and strike the rest. Do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies. And that is simpler and clearer. And so another point to Congress. The Virginian gentleman continues. We utterly dissolve and break off all political connection, which may have heretofore subsisted between us and the people or Parliament of Great Britain. And finally, we do assert and declare these colonies to be free and independent states, and that as free and independent states, they shall hereafter have power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. 
Congress adds a phrase heavily reliant on Jefferson's text, as well as Richard Henry Lee's resolutions, as follows. Solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states, and that. They then delete, we utterly dissolve and break off, and pick up with all political connection. And then erase, which may have heretofore subsisted, leave the word between, and remove us and the people or parliament. Then add them and the state, and leave of Great Britain. Then cut out, and finally, we do assert and declare these colonies to be free and independent states. Remember, they move that up higher in the sentence, and then add, is and ought to be fully dissolved. They later delete the surplus, shall hereafter, and insert full, before the phrase, power to levy war. That was all most difficult to follow. But now, this following final text is most eloquent. Solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. The collective editing once again improves the meaning and flow of the passage. Kudos to Congress. Then Jefferson comes in for the final brilliant sentence. And for the support of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. As brilliant as this is, Congress realizes it is missing something. And they add after the phrase, and for the support of this declaration, the following. With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Recognizing Jefferson's brilliance, they leave everything else alone. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And this, my fellow patriots, is a masterstroke and super bonus points to Congress. And that indeed was the last sentence of the final engrossed version of the declaration presented for signing on August 2nd, 1776. Some key takeaways from this episode. Thomas Jefferson prepared a first draft of the Declaration of Independence containing much of the guts and phraseology of the final version. Jefferson's version was slightly edited with a handful of suggestions by the Committee of Five, which was tasked with drafting the document. Those changes almost certainly only came from John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. The Second Continental Congress took an active role in reviewing and editing the document. One change in particular, the deletion of the condemnation of the slave trade, was a terrible decision that ignored the awful violation of the unalienable rights of men and women and which laid the seeds for misery, desolation, death, and civil war. But most of the other changes made the document stronger, more concise, more powerful. They helped make the Declaration of Independence perhaps the most memorable and important political document in human history. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett. 
sci-fi and history buff extraordinaire. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week, and please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents and speeches, patriots and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Please join us in our next regular episode when we continue to review the lives of the magnificent men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.